Hi, thank you for checking out The Metamystic. This podcast is a place where metaphysics and mysticism blend to create reality and how this information can help us transcend our current human consciousness into one that promotes universal love and acceptance for all. This podcast is intended to be a safe place for people wanting to ask deeper questions about the multifaceted and multidimensionality of our realities. It's for people who want to share their extraordinary experiences and exceptional encounters. It's a podcast for people who care about the conservation of Earth and protecting its animal, plant, and human species. It's for people who care about social justice and art and elevating the voices of others that may not look like them. It is for the seekers and for anyone who has an open heart and mind to ideas you may not have heard before or may even challenge some ideas you already hold. It is my hope that in exploring the topics presented in this podcast, you will gain a broader understanding of how we are all wonderfully connected to each other, the universe, and far more than we ever expected. Alright, hey, what's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Metamystic. This week's episode is a continuation from last week's episode, which was called, Wait, You Were a Doctor on Neptune? And if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it, because in this episode, we are going to break down some of the topics and things that Gloria's subconscious mind was able to uncover under hypnosis. In that episode, we briefly discussed what hypnosis was, a little bit about the history. I also briefly explained what quantum healing hypnosis technique is, or we also call it QHHT, and that is the particular form of hypnosis that I work in and what I really like to do with clients. And this form of hypnosis is so powerful, I love that it's just able to help people access a part of their subconscious that we don't have the everyday access to due to our conscious mind just kind of clouding out the subconscious. So in that state of trance, we're just able to access information not consciously known to the individual. Again, this goes back to the idea that I talked about in Brief Exploits in Epistemology, that everything is energy, everything is consciousness, everything is information, gathering itself, like all of ourselves, everything. The brain is just a receiver, a transmitter of ideas, of facts and energy and impulses that is working to help our bodies and to help us function without our needing to be aware of it. So we have all of these biological functions going on within us that we aren't even conscious of, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, right? Our brains are kind of like the motherboard and our working mind is the software. And what if maybe consciousness is the awareness that animates all things, including us? As I was recording the follow-up episode to, wait, you were a doctor on Neptune? I was planning on just producing that as a one standalone episode continuation of our previous conversation, but just as it has been for most of the information in this podcast, 
The more that I study and talk about this phenomena, the more that this type of information comes into my experience. And part of it too is that I'm researching a lot more. So obviously that's going to do something, but also it's just the nature of thinking about it and putting that intention out there. There's been something very interesting that these loose ends are coming together and I'm having more of a concrete opinion on some of these topics just because I've been exploring them, just because I have been doing a podcast to talk with you guys about it. And I feel more comfortable in my beliefs in a weird way because I feel like I have information to back this up. So with that said, we are just going to touch upon some of the comments and, and things that came up during Gloria's session. A lot of this information is really fascinating and I thought that it's deserving of having more than just a lump sum compilation of glorious greatest hypnosis hits. I decided to make these standalone episodes. So for the next several episodes, we're just going to delve into a few of the topics that Gloria brought up and just section that off because I think it's really worthy of exploring this information with an open heart and an open mind. And I also wanted to say that in no way am I teasing or making fun of Gloria. I love Gloria. And if anything, I actually believe almost pretty much everything that Gloria has said based upon my experience and research into this phenomena and what other people have said in hypnosis. Of course, you must follow your heart and your intuition because perhaps you're not ready for the information that is in this podcast or maybe it doesn't make sense to you and that's totally okay or maybe it absolutely resonates with you and makes sense of things that you've been thinking about. Well, that's kind of the fun about this experiment and this podcast is that it's up to you to make the decision. I am merely the guide and the person who is bringing this information to you and explaining how I got into the metamystic. So let's dive in and see where Gloria and her realizations are going to take us next. And so in this episode, we're gonna break down all of the incredible revelations that she said. First of all, I just wanna briefly just talk about hypnosis. Let's go back to this for a moment in case we need a refresher or if you didn't check the first episode out. So just briefly, I'm going to read an excerpt from a Science Daily article that discusses the research done by several scientists at the Stanford University School of Medicine in regards to hypnosis. In this study, Dr. David Siegel and his colleagues discovered three hallmarks of the brain while under hypnosis. Each change was seen only in the highly hypnotizable group and only when they were undergoing hypnosis. First, they saw a decrease in activity in an area called the dorsal anterior cingulate, I hope I'm saying that right, which is part of the brain's salience network. And what Dr. David Siegel says, in hypnosis, you're so absorbed that you're not worrying about anything else. Secondly, they saw an increase in connections between two other areas of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the insula. He described this as a brain-body connection that helps the brain process and control what's going on in the body. Finally, Spiegel's team also observed reduced connections between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the default mode network, which includes the medial 
prefrontal and the posterior cingulate cortex. So I don't necessarily know where all those regions are in the brain, but I hope that this gives you kind of an idea of what we're talking about, which also really quickly, I always think it's kind of mind boggling when you think about this, that if you've ever, and maybe y'all have heard this, where people say the brain named itself, which is like, whoa, what? Yeah, that's like mind boggling to think about. And what they said is this decrease in functional connectivity likely represents a disconnect between someone's actions and their awareness of their actions. And the doctor goes on to say, when you're really engaged in something, you don't really think about doing it, you just do it. During hypnosis, this kind of dissociation between action and reflection allows the person to engage in activities, either suggested by a clinician or self-suggested without devoting mental resources to being self-conscious about the activity. So to sum that up, basically, in hypnosis, we are accessing certain parts of the brain that we are not really able to when we're in our conscious daily life. But in this state, we are highly focused and you know, you're just kind of stream of consciousness, like whatever's coming through is what you're saying. And, and here's the thing about this too. When you're having a hypnosis session, what's going on is when I'm asking these questions, you like your the subject's eyes are closed and you are kind of just seeing images come to you in your mind's eye. So it's like you're there, like you're seeing it with a bird's eye view or you're experiencing it from the first hand perspective. And it really is wild. Um, and it just kind of ties into remote viewing as well, which we will be getting into at some point. Okay, I just wanted to kind of give a brief explanation of hypnosis and kind of give some facts that I didn't in the last episode. Again, we're gonna have a couple episodes dedicated to hypnosis and everything. But now let's focus on what Gloria said and we're going to explore some of the topics that she brought up during the session and I'm going to briefly just list them and then we're going to go through each one and I'm going to bring in facts and different ideas and opinions that that corroborate some of the information that she said or maybe refuted it or maybe we just don't know. And also let me just clarify that Gloria affirmed that she did not know any of this information prior to the session. And even when we were having the session, she had no idea. And this information was just coming through to her. Um, I was not trying to lead her. I was just using my investigative skills that I honed as a social worker to guide her through her experience and offer insight to the material and the information that was coming up. Gloria stated that Neptune is the color blue. She said it had a dense atmosphere. It was very windy. The sky was blue and white. She could see other planets from it, but they were faint. She said the sun was faint. When I asked her if she could see any moons of Neptune, she said she was not able to see them. This could be due to the fact that the planet's cloud cover has an especially vivid blue tint that is partly due to an as yet unidentified compound that is the result of the absorption of red light by methane in the planet's mostly hydrogen-helium atmosphere. And again, I did not know a lot about Neptune prior to this session and the research that I've done since then, and especially for this episode. So I think that kind of lends an even more credibility to the information that Gloria was talking about because I did not know anything really about the planet Neptune, and neither did she. Some of the other information that came through were that Neptunians originally came from the Sirius star system. 
And as other people that may be listening to this podcast are aware of, but the Syrians are usually known as loving beings who have come to our solar system and they're part of what we will talk about later, but a galactic council of alien races who are here monitoring our activities on Earth, which might sound wild. We're going to get into that at some point, but I'm just giving you a little bit of basis of where this comes from. And this is information that is not just coming from Gloria. She also said that the Neptunians were mean, that they didn't have love in their heart. She said that they were all the same race. They were white Caucasian skin. They had blonde hair or brown hair. They were blue eyed and brown eyed. They were very tall, very advanced. What's interesting about this too is in other circles and other accounts, there are known as what's the Nordic beings. And I asked her, I was like, are these the Nordic beings that we've heard about? And I don't think she knew the term Nordic, but she was able to give enough characteristics and descriptions that I think this is kind of the, the type of beings that she's talking about. She also said that Neptune was inhabited by Martians who were fleeing their planet. So yeah, Mars was habitated, guys, back in the day. We'll talk about that later too. But of course, she didn't know this. And so she said Martians had left their planet because it was being destroyed. And so she's visualizing this. She's seeing this in her mind, what was happening. And she said Mars was destroyed due to the people that were living there. They had a civil war, possibly a nuclear war. This has come up from other hypnosis subjects People have also remote viewed, which is kind of like tapping into the Akashic records, but it's like a coordinated way of, of looking at things from your psychic, your mind's eye without even being aware of what you're looking at. You're just giving like a set of coordinates and you go and look at whatever's there. And so we'll talk about remote viewing too. I know I said that again, but I, that's, I can't wait to talk about that episode. And I'm bringing it up in this section just to say, hey, there's some corroboration to what she's saying, that it's not just all in left field. It might be out of this planet, but there are other people who have recounted similar experiences. Gloria also said that most of the human race on Earth has been seeded by beings who came to the Earth from Mars and other planets. She said Earth is populated from many different planets and races. Earth humans are mostly populated by beings from Venus. So our solar system is a lot busier than we've been led to believe, I guess, right? She said the Martians and the other beings came from spaceships. They landed in the water of the Earth and they went and lived on different places of the Earth. And it's interesting that she brings up the Mars connection because guys, listen to this, guys and gals and everyone in between. Cairo, which is the capital of Egypt, which is where the pyramids are, the name Cairo literally means Mars. It means Mars. Like what? So that is crazy in and of itself. Like we're having this corroboration, like not only from what she's saying and other people have said, and I'm going to throw out a few facts about Mars before we delve deeper into the conversation of what Gloria said and what she saw when she was under hypnosis. As you probably already know, Mars is the fourth planet in the solar system in order from distance from the sun and it's seventh in size and in mass. It is a conspicuous reddish object in the night sky. It's visible without a telescope. You can see it in the night sky. And it's sometimes called a red planet 
Mars has long been associated with warfare and slaughter, which I think is very fascinating, especially given the information that we're going to talk about. It is named for the Roman god of war, Ares. As long as 3,000 years ago, Babylonian astronomer and astrologists called the planet Nergal for their god of death and pestilence. The planet's two moons, Phobos, meaning fear, and Deimos, terror, in Greek, were named for the two sons of Ares and Aphrodite, the counterparts of Mars and Venus, respectively, in Greek mythology. And as I've come to understand, it seems that in Greek mythology and Roman mythology and so many of the mythologies of peoples across the world that sometimes the myths seem to be more fact than they do fiction. It's been a source of debate as to whether the planet Mars has ever had life on it, but what is almost of no debate anymore is that conditions on the red planet were actually habitable in the past. According to Britannica.com's encyclopedia article about Mars, it says that Mars is similar to Earth in many ways. Like Earth, Mars has clouds, winds, a roughly 24-hour day, seasonal weather patterns, polar ice caps, volcanoes, canyons, and other familiar Earth-like features. There are intriguing clues that billions of years ago, Mars was even more Earth-like than today, with a denser, warmer atmosphere and much more water, rivers, lakes, flood channels, and perhaps oceans. By some indications, Mars looks to be a sterile, frozen desert. However, close-up images of dark streaks on the slopes of some craters during Martian spring and summer suggest that at least small amounts of water may flow seasonally on the planet's surface, and radar reflections from a possible lake under the south polar cap suggests that water may still exist as a liquid in protected areas below the surface. The presence of water on Mars is considered a critical issue because life as it is presently understood cannot exist without water. If microscopic life forms ever did originate on Mars, there remains a chance, albeit a remote one, that they may yet survive in these hidden watery niches. In 1996, a team of scientists reported what they concluded to be evidence for ancient microbial life in a piece of meteorite that had come from Mars. But many scientists have disputed their interpretation, and maybe a reason about that is because this would go against the scientific establishment's steady stream of what they believe is the course of history, and if things go outside of that realm of possibilities, then they just immediately shut it down. There are some other similarities to Mars that I think is kind of fascinating. So Mars spins on its axis once every 24 hours and 37 minutes, making a day on Mars only a little longer than an Earth day. I think most of us could agree that we could maybe deal with having a 37 minute more longer day on Earth, but I don't think that we would really like to live on Mars here because that is about twice as long as Earth days being at 686 days for its rotation around the sun. But if we were to measure our own years and Martian years, we really could say that 40 is the new 30. So those are just a quick 
few facts about Mars and I'll include a link for you to read more about it in the show notes. And now I'm going to turn our attention to something that I have found while doing this podcast. And according to research presented at Goldschmidt Geochemistry Conference in Florence in 2013, there was compelling evidence that life on Earth was kickstarted by a meteorite from Mars bearing simple RNA-based organisms. Furthermore, the same research also indicates that the ancient primordial surface of Earth would have been inhospitable to the formation of the building blocks of life, RNA, DNA, and other such proteins. Therefore, the only way that life could have begun more than 3 billion years ago is if it arrived here from Mars or some other similar planet. As far as we know, life began on Earth roughly 3.5 billion years ago. The leading theory on how life began is abiogenesis, that life spontaneously formed from organic compounds, which themselves spontaneously formed. What we don't know is whether abiogenesis occurred here on Earth or whether it occurred elsewhere in the universe and then was deposited here via a meteorite, which is known as exogenesis or panspermia. Now, according to the findings of Stephen Brenner of the Westheimer Institute for Science and Technology in Florida, conditions here on Earth would have made it impossible for these organic compounds to make the leap to life, while the conditions on Mars would have been just right. Which is mind-boggling to me that Mars could have been the more habitable planet and Earth was the desolate wasteland. So, I mean, I guess that kind of just shows how planets cycle and that some things that are living might be dead and vice versa. And that just is kind of a beautiful testament to the universe itself and just how life is constantly flowing and going. And we don't really know what's next, but we've lived it all and we've done it already, guys, whether we want to believe that or not. So it must make sense that, okay, Mars was habitable and then Earth wasn't. That just is kind of funny, divine irony, right? Basically, Binner postulates that RNA, the single-stranded, non-helical version of DNA, was probably the first building block of life. He says that it could only have been created in the presence of highly oxidized molybdenum and boron. It's theorized that these particles could have helped early organic compounds form into carbohydrate rings and that these could have acted as a template for forming these carbohydrates into ribose and thus RNA. Here's the rub. Three billion years ago, Earth had an oxygen-rich atmosphere, and so this form of molybdenum was not available. Likewise, Earth was completely covered in water, and boron is currently only found in extremely dry places. But on the other hand, four billion years ago, long before life is believed to have started here on Earth, we believe that Mars had an oxygen-rich atmosphere and dry areas where boron could have formed in high concentrations. If simple RNA-based organisms did actually form on Mars, then it wouldn't be too hard for it to hitch a ride to an Earth on a meteorite. This theory, if it's correct, raises an interesting question. If life started on Mars, where is it now? Mars once had an atmosphere and surface water, but lost both a long time ago. We know that life is incredibly rugged and capable of surviving in some of the most inhospitable environments imaginable, such as the vacuum of space or in darkness under miles of ice. If life did form on Mars, it's entirely possible 
that life is still there. That was one of the first articles that I clicked on when I was researching this podcast, and I just basically put in this the search, was there life on Mars? And this article popped up along with many others, and that was just a really interesting account of some of what has been going on on the planet next to us, and I wasn't even really aware of how hospitable it was until I started doing this podcast. So hopefully you guys are learning some information too. And in this next section, I am going to explore some gnarly information from a Slate.com article called A Martian State of Mind. Did the CIA really astrally project to Mars in 1984? We asked a psychic spy. Again, remote viewing comes up into so many of these topics and Here, I'm just going to briefly recount some of the things that were said in this article and in the transcript that follows, because it corroborates what Gloria said, and that's what's fascinating about it. I was already vaguely aware of some of the components of the story, but this is the first time that I have read that full account and am sharing it with you guys. And as I've kind of briefly touched upon with remote viewing, basically a subject is given a set of coordinates. And it's somebody who's trained in how to do this, which anyone can remote view, by the way. I I also am a remote viewer myself. But, you know, people who are trained, and this was back in the 80s, so there wasn't as many people doing this uh, as they are now, or there wasn't as much access to it. But these subjects are given a set of coordinates and are told to just write down the first things that come to their mind or to draw them. And they usually have a person who is their moderator or their interviewer, and they are guiding them through this projection. And it's very similar to what I do as a hypnotist, where I am just leading the person through this regression or in this montage, and they are the ones who are supplying this information. So this is what they said. This is part of the transcript. The information from this article is actually from the CIA itself. It's from the freely available public reading room section of the CIA's website. And it goes under the unassuming title, Mars Exploration, May 22nd, 1984. A brief explanatory note indicates that this subject was given a sealed envelope immediately prior to the interview, but was instructed not to open it. During the interview itself, the subject only had verbal access to selected geographic coordinates. So, all this to say that the subject did not know what they were remote viewing. In what follows, the conversation jumps around rapidly from the subject to the monitor about this situation. So, I'm going to read for both parts. The subject says, I'm seeing, uh, it's like a perception of a shadow of people. Very tall, thin. It's only a shadow. It's as if they were there and they're not, not there anymore. The monitor asks, go back to a period of time when they are there. Subject. Um, it's like I get a lot of static on a line and everything. It's breaking up all the time. Very fragmentary pieces. I just keep seeing very large people. They appear thin and tall, but they're very large. Ah, And they're wearing some kind of strange clothes. So the monitor asks the subject to describe some sites, some periods of interest, and he notices a large obelisk that reminds him of the Washington Monument. 
He says they were like rounded bottom carved channels like road beds. And most strikingly, he saw pyramids like shelters from storms. In those structures, he said he finds the shadowy people he had seen before hibernating. He says, they're an ancient people. They're, uh, they're dying. It's past their time or age. Then the three by five inch card in the sealed envelope, which remember supposedly went unseen until all of these visions had faded, provides some clues as to what the subject was witnessing. Like the dateline of some LSD soaked cartoon, it read the planet Mars time of interest, approximately 1 million years BCE. This, in other words, is a purportedly real record of some real intelligence services attempt to visit another world through astral projection while examining its distant past. Again, this corroborates what Gloria was saying in her session. She saw these tall beings and that they died because of a civil war. The planet Mars was destroyed because of a civil war on their planet. A little further down in the article, the reporter says that in an attempt to understand the context of all of this and the Stargate phenomenon, he turns to the Stargate Chronicles, which was a memoir by Joseph McMoneagle, a retired chief warrant officer now in his 70s, who was known as one of the psychic spies of the Stargate program. McMoneagle counts among the more reputable representatives of the Stargate clan having been awarded the legion of merit for his deeds and combat though he largely sticks to verifiable facts about his life and career he also details a handful of more unusual experiences including a time when he says he was seared by a light from the heavens and a series of visitations by a minor hindu deity he also lays out a novel theory of time writing i believe we fool ourselves into thinking that things are linear because we normally experience them in that fashion so McMoneagle gives some extra details about this account, saying that there was a sketch of tall and thin humanoids, suggesting their body stretched to almost twice the height of the average Earthling, which again, Gloria said that the Neptunians were very tall. They were very tall. She kept saying that. McMoneagle said he was at the Virginia-based Monroe Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of altered consciousness. On the day in question, he was napping in the Institute's black box, a one-foot-thick, totally shielded containment room that has a shield door, which was used in remote viewing experiments. He said that Dr. Monroe, the Institute's director, and the unnamed monitor from the document, woke him and handed him the sealed envelope before leading him through the session. As he tells it, neither he nor Monroe had any idea what he was being asked to examine. Neither of us knew what we were working on, he says. Our assumption at the time was that I was working on targets on Earth. This left him especially confused about the pyramids he claimed to perceive since, as he said, I was not familiar with any pyramids on Earth that had such rooms. He professed confusion about why the army would have chosen such a target, one from which actionable intelligence was not immediately forthcoming. He says, I have not got a clue, absolutely none. It was so totally out of left field for me. Indeed, he could only name one other occasion when he'd been asked to examine a similar target, 
and that was a photograph that appeared to include incidental evidence of a UFO. On another occasion, he declined a request to mentally examine a similar subject, reluctant to waste his time. He says, the problem that I have with targeting UFOs and Mars and things like that is that there's no real way to validate the information, which is a great and valid point and one that is brought up time and time again when we talk about this type of information. Mick Moneagle, however, remains a true believer. In the book Mind Trek, he acknowledges that he doesn't know whether his visions really produced irrefutable proof of the existence of aliens from Mars a million years ago. He continues to write, saying that there's enough evidence to justify further investigation. Given the probable cost and potential for discovery, he thinks that our governments wouldn't hesitate to investigate before suggesting maybe it's fear that prevents us from doing so. Which, again, is another salient and very reasonable point that he brings up in regards to this information. So if there was life on Mars, and if there were ancient people hiding in pyramids, what were they hiding from, and what happened to them? If you do a quick Google search asking what happened to Mars, did Mars have a nuclear explosion? There are many articles that pop up. Again, things that I was not expecting. So I'm gonna link a couple of those in the show notes as well. But just to give you a couple of ideas, we're gonna read the quick abstract from this paper called The Evidence of a Massive Thermonuclear Explosion on Mars in the Past, The Cydonian Hypothesis and Fermi's Paradox. So in the summary, he says, evidence for two massive airburst thermonuclear explosions on Mars in the past is presented, as well as the apparent correlation of the explosion locations with sites of apparent archeology. span The explosions were apparently large enough to permanently change Mars climate from Earth-like in the past to its present barren state. This suggests that the Fermi paradox, which is the apparent silence and uninhabited character of the cosmos, despite the abundance of extrasolar planets and life precursor chemicals in the universe, may be due to agencies hostile to less developed civilizations. And then he says, an immediate human expedition to Mars to investigate this matter is therefore urged. There might be more than one reason that Elon Musk wants to get away from Earth and find out what really happened on the red planet. So just to read a little bit more from this document, he says that Mars is the nearest Earth-like planet that we can explore in the cosmos. Mars shows evidence of being far more Earth-like in the past and of having biology. Mars also shows evidence that during this period of Earth-like climate, biological evolution produced at length a humanoid civilization leaving ruins at several sites. Cydonia Mensa and Galaxius Chaos being two sites most intensively investigated. Data from these sites form the basis for the Cydonian hypothesis of an ancient indigenous approximately Bronze Age civilization on Mars. Isotopic and gamma ray data from Mars has now revealed evidence that a massive mixed fusion fission explosion happened on Mars near Cydonia Mensa. Evidence of a smaller explosion is also found near Galaxius Chaos. Taken together, this assemblage of data suggests a possible planetary nuclear massacre occurred on Mars in the distant past. Therefore, the answer to Fermi's paradox may lie on Mars, that intelligent technological forces 
are loose in the universe that wipe out more primitive species. This article is very heavily researched and has a ton of references and there's tons of maps that really go into depth and he talks a lot about the chemical composition of Mars and the xenon and all of these other elements and isotopes that are in their atmosphere that are very indicative of a nuclear explosion, either natural or non-natural, that occurred on the planet. And I'm just going to jump down a little bit further into the article, and it says, Given the large amount of nuclear isotopes in Mars' atmosphere resembles those from hydrogen bomb tests on Earth, Mars may present an example of civilization wiped out by a nuclear attack from space. Therefore, the resolution of the Fermi paradox may lie within easy reach of the human race. These are scenarios only explored in science fiction. The most dangerous thing to intelligent life in the cosmos may just be other intelligent life. If this is so, discovering this fact on Mars may allow us to prepare to survive any confrontation with such forces. And he concludes the article by saying, Here is the working hypothesis concerning Mars at our present state of knowledge. Mars appears to become the home of life at the same time as Earth but cooled earlier and achieved intelligence before Earth, ultimately having held a primitive civilization that built massive monuments which we recognize now despite some erosion and editing out from NASA. The civilization was global and concentrated in the northern hemisphere of Mars near its ocean, but Mars was destroyed in a very similar way that the planet Alderaan in the movie Star Wars was destroyed. Of course, it didn't blow up like that, but just a similar destructive nature. And he goes on to say that the discovery of a dead civilization on Mars whose end was apparently catastrophic and due to unknown causes reinforces our understanding that the cosmos can be a dangerous place and requires a vigorous response from the human race to reduce the probability that we will perish the same way. The most likely cause of the Cydonian demise, the large asteroid impact from the Lyo impact basin causing collapse of a Mars greenhouse system, is a hazard of the cosmos that we were aware of. However, the second possible catastrophe, a pair of large and anomalous nuclear events centered apparently near Cydonia and also near Galaxias, and leaving no craters, is much more difficult to understand. In summary, Mars has been found to have been both the site of intelligent humanoid life and its catastrophic death. Given what lays on Mars, we must do, with dispatch, what is necessary to maximize chances of long-term human survival in a cosmos that is both fascinating and dangerous. And that's where the article ends, but I would also like to add that a cosmos which is brimming with life and that is the expansion of consciousness in infinite myriad ways of fractals and ever-changing types of information and experiences and that's exactly what we were supposed to do now after reading this information and compiling it from several different sources and then putting it together with what gloria said in her session it all kind of pans out. How wild is that? As Gloria said herself, she had no formal training or education in regards to the exoplanets or the planets of our solar system or their composition. So the information that came through, she said she had no idea where that came from. That was not 
known on a conscious level, which again is a hallmark of hypnosis and being able to tap into that universal consciousness that those Akashic records that we kind of talked about and we'll talk about later. And we are going to end this episode just reviewing and summarizing a few of the things that Gloria said she saw during her hypnosis session. So she said the Neptunians were mean, which is so funny. She said they didn't have love in their heart. Well, that's not funny. Um, she said that they were all the same race, like white, Caucasian skin, blonde hair, brown hair, blue eyed and brown eyed. They were very tall, which was another corroboration. They were very advanced. And she said Neptune was inhabited by Martians fleeing their planet. Well, now we have some context of why this may have happened. They're, she says Mars was destroyed due to the people. They had a civil war. She said some came to the Earth from Mars and other planets. She further said that Earth is populated from many different planets and races. She said that the Martians and other beings came from spaceships. And Gloria said that these beings went to certain places on the Earth and they started their own civilizations. I pressed her for more information about where these people went, where did they end up having these civilizations, and we didn't really get into that, but to corroborate some of this evidence, as I said earlier, the Giza Plateau and the name Cairo itself is named for Mars. I also did a quick brief history of the name of Mars, and I found that the name Al-Kahira literally means the subduer. Though it is often translated as the victorious, the name Cairo is believed to derive from the Arabic name of the planet Mars, Al-Najim Al-Kahir, which was rising on the day the city was founded by the Fatimid dynasty in 972 CE. And many civilizations have incorporated Mars into their understanding of the universe, and we've touched upon a couple of them today and just to kind of briefly go back to that uh, i think something that's interesting is the roman symbol used by greeks to denote mars is still used today as the male gender marker it's that one with the circle with the arrow going up so we have a long history of mars being this warring planet and in fact it was adapted from the greek counterpart aries the Babylonians called Mars Nergal after their god of fire, war, and destruction. And early Hindus called Mars Mangala, the celibate god of war. As one of our closest planetary neighbors, Mars has always captivated the human imagination. Its movement and color have been noted and tracked by humans across history and has inspired the creation of cultural icons. It's no wonder that Mars has held such a fascination in human minds throughout history and civilizations. It is the closest planet that we can observe with our naked eye other than Venus. And there is some link to Mars. It's our closest one that we can get to. And yet it has this whole history of destruction. Aside from the astounding facts that she gave and some of the interpretations that came through, there's ultimately this idea that, hey, we are connected to so much more than we could ever understand and more than we realize and that all this is happening with or without our awareness. But I think that the more of us who become aware or who are in tune with this, that we will be able to make greater changes. And when we 
finally realize that we are not alone in the cosmos, man, how much does that just change the way that you look at the world, the way that you look at life? And if more people really knew this and had this knowledge, we would just change so much about ourselves and our society. And there are reasons that we haven't done that yet. And one of the reasons that I've heard from other researchers and other contactees is that humans as a collective whole have been conditioned to believe that we are alone in the solar system. We have not had any contact with any beings. We talk about the Fermi paradox, like the universe should be teeming with life, but there's no evidence of it. But what we have found out or other people have said is that there's kind of a quarantine on earth, meaning that they are not really showing themselves to us other than like, you know, in UFO sightings or things like that, because there is like some messages being sent and there are beings who are possibly aiding our planet and we just aren't aware of that. But what I hear them saying is that, you know, these races aren't showing themselves to us because we are not ready for that. We can barely get along with each other. We have wars all the time. We talk about each other's rights being taken away. You know, there's all this conflict that's going on. Some of it is done intentionally. It is done to purposely distract us, to keep us away from each other, and to consolidate power and keep the masses struggling and fighting against each other. So if we were to really know our place in the universe, we would say, no, this is not right. We're going to stop this. We're going to take this down. And that is why it's really important for us to come to know about this information and to not judge it. It's okay if you don't understand this or if you don't believe this stuff. Believe me, I did not either. This was nothing I was expecting to find when I like started to delve into past lives and when I had my own regression. But the more that I've studied it, the more that I am having these conversations and the more hypnosis sessions I do and read books I read and podcasts I listen to, the more that this information is being confirmed so to me, that says something that there is more to it than just being able to blatantly cast it off as this is just ramblings of a woman who doesn't really know what she's talking about and that hypnosis isn't real and that, you know, she's just talking about a fantasy. And, you know, if you think that that's OK, I don't even blame you for that. I know that some of this can be hard to believe, but I do ask you to just suspend your disbelief and let me present some of the facts to you and then maybe we can help you come to some sort of understanding and you can make your own opinion and your own decision but at least just keep an open mind as i do my best to tackle some of this information and and find the facts and the conjectures the fallacies and the truths that came out from gloria's possible past life as a doctor on Neptune. Thank you again so much for tuning into this episode. If you liked it, please leave me a five-star review 
and tell your friends, tell one friend about the podcast. Um, so that way this information and this knowledge can reach more people. And because I want this conversation to be had with as many people as possible. As always, you can email me at themetamystic at gmail.com. That's with two T's. Or you can find me at IG on at the metamystic. And also my personal Instagram is JD Katana. Thank you again for listening and being the best part of this episode and this podcast series. I'll catch you next time somewhere in the metamystic.